You are listening to The Andrew Miller Show. This episode was recorded when the show had a different name. Same show otherwise. Anyway, enjoy. Greetings, great and wonderful people. I'm Andrew Miller. You're listening to Get Yours Today. Got better candidates, got better government, got better results. This episode, we're talking with Bart Everson, running for New Orleans City Council at large. He's an active volunteer with Citizens Climate Lobby, founding member of the Green Party of Louisiana, works at Xavier University, and is a fellow with the Norman C. Francis Leadership Institute. While Bart wants to address the main issues on most people's minds in New Orleans, he points out none can be fixed thoroughly if we don't handle the issue of climate change. That issue is nothing to scoff at, especially in New Orleans, where we all know is at high risk, very high risk area when it comes to rising sea levels and natural disasters. Someone needs to step up to the plate and voters deserve such an option. Let's hear what Bart has to say. With us, we have Bart Everson. How are you doing today? I am well, thank you for asking. How are you? Oh, fantastic, thanks for being on the program. All right, so yeah, on your campaign site, you do acknowledge for top concerns and priorities that people around New Orleans have, and we'll get to those. But the main issue you draw a lot of attention and focus to is climate and the environment. And it makes sense because we all know, based on where New Orleans is located, you know, huge risk of a climate catastrophe. I mean, even seeing what Hurricane Katrina did years ago alone. So this problem gets worse. And yeah, that's a serious local issue to worry about. And, you know, the steps you want to take immediately from what I read are declare a climate emergency, adopt a resolution declaring the right to a clean environment, establish a comprehensive New Orleans green dashboard that tracks things such as the city's carbon footprint in a transparent and public fashion, and establish an office on climate justice. And then there are additional urgent steps. You know, next steps I would include holding Entergy, which I, that's the, like the utility that's down there? That's right. That's the, uh, the for-profit shareholder-driven uh, utility that runs our electrical system that is regulated by the city council. Ah, okay. And improve transportation options. That's always like a huge interest to me. Uh, decarbonize the local economy, municipal composting, ban single-use plastics. Uh, updating zoning and building codes and implement green climate education programs. So amongst the uh, voters and residents and or, or those who are already serving on the city council, uh, do you have a lot of support for any of these? Well, yes and no. I think that uh, this is something that people give uh, some lip service to. I got in the race though specifically because it's, it's really not being talked about that much. In fact, I would uh, say one of the big 
thing that I've learned from being on the campaign trail now for a while is just how difficult it is to bring these forward. Uh, because generally speaking, when politicians are running for office, when candidates are putting themselves out there for the people, you know, to, and they're trying to get elected, they want to tell people something they want to hear. Oh, sure. Yeah, as a rule, you know, I mean, it, it, there's, it's just kind of the prevailing winds, the way that they, they blow in these events is like, all right, what's your message to us that we want to hear? Uh, and I'm really out there trying to talk about some things that people don't want to hear, but that we all know we need to hear. Oh, sure. We'd rather not think about it. I mean, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of difficult to uh, come to grips with for the city of New Orleans, it's like an existential threat. Mm. And that's very clear, and we know that, but we feel kind of disempowered, right? And so we rather, it's kind of like, oh, that's just too big and it's too scary oh, sure. to think about. So, so it doesn't get talked about. And uh, that's been my role then uh, on, the, on the campaign trail to try to inject it into the dialogue uh, so that the other candidates kind of keep hearing about it as well and feel compelled or almost like they're given permission now to, to talk about it a little bit more. And whoever wins the race, they're definitely going to have to be dealing with this new climate reality. Oh, definitely, of course. And, you know, while it's something that because there's so many other things going on that people are focused on. And as you said, this isn't something people always want to hear. I mean, when it's too late, they're all of a sudden they're going to wish they heard about it before it, it was too late, you know, so you're doing the right thing. And, but is there any like solid, like opposition against any of it? Uh, I did. So we live in a democratic stronghold. Okay. And uh, all of my, uh, all the other people in the race are Democrats. And, uh, I believe that they understand that climate change is, is, is real. Uh, they're not deniers. Uh, in fact, one of them even said to me at the first event we had after Hurricane Ida, you know, which just swept through here uh, like a month ago. Oh, yeah. Uh, he said to me, Mark, uh, I can't believe everything you've been saying on the, on the, at these campaign events. It was borne out by Hurricane Ida. Uh, you know, it's all it's all true, which is you know gratifying to hear. Of course, you'd rather not be validated by a, um, a storm that you know deals in death and destruction uh, that cuts such a swath across the across the country, really. Um, oh sure. But it, it it's definitely true that now more than ever, all of a sudden, people are on board. Now, I did speak at a um, the Orleans Parish Republican Executive Committee. All right. Uh, and I had a feeling there, as I was talking about this stuff, I had a feeling that the older Republicans in the audience were in, in complete denial. Wow. Um, and they just didn't want to hear this. But the younger Republicans uh, came, you know, went out of their way afterwards to say, hey, great speech. Oh, wow. Because, because they know that this is something we have to, that they even more are going to have to be living with than old folks like me. Oh, wow, definitely. Well, that's a good sign to hear that, uh, you know, younger people even 
as you said, in Republicans now are are coming around with this uh, climate issue because when you said the older ones just were in just complete denial of it, I mean, yeah, that, that that's scary. And it was scary saying, oh man, that's the direction that party is going. When, you know, it used to be mixed, you know, when we go back 30, 40, 50 years, like the EPA was in Earth Day, I mean, was done when Nixon was president. Yes. And, and then even right, he grew up in New Jersey in the 80s, you know, during the Reagan era, we had a Republican governor and, you know, he did some good environmental things like a whole, like the Pine Barrens, it's a part of South Jersey, the whole nature reserve. It's supposed to be one of the most mm -hmm. uh, diverse ecosystems in the country, maybe even the world. And then even uh, along one of the interstates, Interstate 78, well here it's called Route 78, was until I left New Jersey that people call say like I-35 or I whatever the interstate number is. But nonetheless though, there's like animal crossing bridges over it. And a lot of people don't realize that exists in America because when you're on social media, someone will show a picture of one that exists like in somewhere like in Asia or Europe saying, oh wow, look how advanced and better they are. And ooh, we need to get this here. And I'm saying, you know, this, it already exists here, not too far from where I live, and it's existed for a long time. So it used to be like a not as partisan issue. There might have been differences on how to go about it and such, but yeah. and then it, things just got ridiculous. You yeah, know, one with, of the, with the major parties in the denial, the most, as you mentioned. Yeah, yeah. One of the most striking examples of that, I think, is these old. If you there's old PSAs, public service announcements, from the national. Rifle Association. Wow. That, uh, if you listen to them, and these are going back to maybe the 60s or 70s, uh, and they're like, uh, they, they, they sound like, uh, they sound like the Green Party or something, you know, because it's, oh, sure. they're talking about how we have to protect the environment and we have to, um, you know, uh, treasure uh, the beauty of the natural world. And they're waxing eloquent about this. And then at the end, it says, this is brought to you by the National Rifle Association. It's so different from, from what, how, what they've become now. Uh, yeah. it's, it's really, it is really uh, disturbing and distressing to see how polarized uh, it's become around an issue that should transcend partisan politics. But clearly, the extraction, you know, this extractivism, uh, this idea of, of exploiting natural resources for maximum profit uh, has that that's really where the, the rubber hits the road, so to speak. And uh, that's where um, I think this partisan divide really emerges because the um, some some folks in our country just will not see that we have to curb that. Sure. that we have to stop the rape of the earth at any at any expense. Uh, at any cost, otherwise we're not gonna have a home. Oh, wow, that's right. And also, you know, the things that I just went over and such, I know improved transportation options, because that's another thing that, you know, does pertain to everybody regardless of their views, just getting to and from work. And, you know, sometimes owning a car isn't the most affordable option for a lot of people, but they still need to get around. And when you talk about improving transportation options, are you talking about like, bike lanes? Are you talking more bus routes? Are you talking light rail or a little bit of all of it? 
Yeah, uh, definitely all of it. Uh, I'm a bicycle commuter myself. Nice. Uh, I've been riding uh, my bicycle to work for 21 years now. Wow. And it is a great way to get around New Orleans because it's flat here. It's never really too cold to ride. Mm. Um, you know, the, our major problem would be some rain. Uh, and, yeah. uh, oh, and you might get kind of sweaty. But other than that, um, it's a great way to get around. And we need to do better, for sure, by our bicyclists and uh, by our pedestrians. Because we know that actually there is a large portion of New Orleanians who don't have cars. A lot of people don't realize that uh, one reason uh, we had you know, so many folks who didn't evacuate for Katrina, for example, was that we had fully a quarter of our population who didn't even have a car. They, and, and everything was built around the automobile uh, at that point with the mm -hmm. evacuation plans and so forth. But uh, the bicycle uh, stuff only gets you so far. You know, not everybody can ride a bike. There's, sure. lots, of, uh, there's lots of issues there. Uh, I, I certainly believe in that. But I think the number one priority uh, has to be in terms of what the city council uh, can do, it's, it's got to be improving public transit. And in uh, New Orleans in particular, I, I, I would say that the city council needs to promote a new millage a tax, a property tax that would uh, you know, significantly improve our, trans our public transit options. We really have a situation right now that with, like many American cities, they're very, it's very automobile focused. You know, everything oh, yeah. centers around the automobile. And we need, to, we need to shift that to the point of where it becomes more attractive to take public transit. You know, just because it's, it, it'd be cheaper and easier and cleaner and quicker than getting in your car and driving and have to worry about parking, all that other stuff. Oh yeah. And this is possible, right? I mean, if we just invested in, I've been, I've, I've visited other cities that have that kind of public transit and that's what we need. And we're so far from that, you know, um, right now public transit is, is very kind of uh, biased along lines of class. And mm -hmm. in the, of course, in America, that also means it's biased along the lines of race. So it becomes uh, uh, something that uh, a middle-class white guy like me doesn't even think about taking public transit um, because I don't, we, we, we just were wired to think of almost tribally about these things. And that needs to change. We need to make a public transit system that's attractive to everybody. But you know, first and foremost, clearly, it's the way that a lot of uh, our low, lower income citizens used to get to work. And right now, they it, it takes just an absurdly long time to get from home to your place of employment on public transit. Oh, so, sure. You know, we need to fix that. And so there's, a, you know, the, the city of the future, uh, and this is where the battle for sustainability will be lost for one is, is in our cities. Um, the city of the future has to uh, be one where we get around the city uh, without consuming vast amounts of energy. Right? We have to do it in a, in a low energy and certainly low carbon uh, method. So we have to electrify everything uh, and promote 
any and all means of, of, of getting around, such as like a bike or, or you know, good old fashioned walking that don't actually consume power off the grid at all. And another thing that people don't uh, think about that much, I know I certainly didn't until I got educated on this issue a little bit, is that there's also implications here when you talk about public transit uh, and, uh, and other uh, transit issues. There's also uh, real implications for affordable housing. Oh yeah. Because the, the folks right now who, who need the public transit the most are also the people who need affordable housing the most. So you need that housing along the public transit lines. Exactly. And, and so anyway, it's all interrelated, of course, and, and that's it is. what our city council needs to, to look at a holistic picture. Yeah, because that, that, that was another thing I was going to bring up, because I know, you know, for example, housing and gentrification is one of those uh, four issues that you've mentioned on your site that, yeah, is on the minds of a lot of people in New Orleans. And, and I'm also glad that you mentioned how it also needs to be hand in hand with the transportation situation because because uh, otherwise you know for example where i live in new jersey northern new jersey right outside new york city yeah we have trains but a lot of it it's all geared toward going in and out of new york city so yeah so when it comes to like class and all that all kinds of people use it so yeah if there's a problem with the train then you know everybody you know feels the same pain but also, I've noticed, though, when it comes to housing gentrification is that like places where there are train stations and where there's like really good public transit happens to be where a lot of these like luxury apartment complexes are being built, too. I mean, I think that's something that's going on everywhere. This it craze is, of like, is, yeah, that, correct. yeah, like just pricing people out. And that and that's like, you know what? I mean, it's a lot of the people who could afford to live there may just be like, I might as well just buy my own house at that point. And also, I, mean, I know what it is. It's trying to say, well, it's slightly cheaper than living in New York City. So instead of living in the city, you know, move here. You know I mean? Like when it comes to people who have high paying jobs in Manhattan and, and whatnot. But the thing is that the pe when it comes to people who would benefit the most from public transit, whether it's being right along the train line or even bus routes, because there's a lot of bus connections near there, those places too. You know, a lot of them are, if this doesn't get under control, a lot of people who need it the most are gonna be the ones who get priced out. And, you know, a and a benefit that this area has that a lot of other places in the country don't, may not be as available to people who live around here who need it the most. And yeah, that's why, you know, when it comes to improving the transportation, it's also to, you know, also make sure it's done hand in hand with uh, affordable housing and what to do about gentrification. That way the people who could benefit from it the most are actually able to. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It has to be a part of the planning process. And that's absolutely what's happening in uh, New Orleans, for sure. The one thing that I found really interesting is uh, there was a development in my neighborhood recently that advertised itself as the first permanent affordable housing hmm. in the city. So you have a lot of these um, 
you know, builders, developers will come in and, and make an apartment complex. And then to get some tax benefits, they put in, you know, a certain number of affordable units, but those all have sunset clauses on them. They oh, all sure. like after 10 years or something, they go away. And then uh, all of a sudden, all the prices uh, go up. All, it's, it's just all market, market value prices and the affordable component is just gone. So what this uh, one neighborhood group did was they actually uh, bought the land uh, uh, underneath a, uh, a housing, uh, an apartment complex, and they established a community land trust. Oh. And that's gonna hold the uh, price down. And you know, it's just basically like a combination of community land trust and rent control is to my understanding. Nice. And anyway, th these are guaranteed to be the, the rental price of the apartments are pegged to the local median income, something like wow. that. Wow, so, so that's good because as you mentioned with sunset clauses or how, I mean, it, after a certain time, the affordable units are no longer there. Another thing I've seen when it comes to those is they only make a small percentage of them affordable housing too. You know, oh, yeah. you know just so they could say, hey, we're building affordable apartments and it'll only be like a small percentage of it that is too. But yeah, that on top of it's set to expire is, is you know, that's, that's awful. But it's good to see that something's being done about it though. Something. So I really like the community land trust uh, model. I think it's something that deserve, more people deserve to know about and to explore because it essentially separates the... Uh, the value of the land from the value of the building that's on the land. Sure. Uh, and this is what uh, you know usually drives the price of rent up so uh, substantially. Nice. And as far as uh, the other issues that are on the minds of people in New Orleans, you know, there's, we, we just went over the housing and gentrification. There's also violence and crime, crumbling infrastructure and racial justice and equity. Uh, what policy recommendations do you have regarding those? Well, you know, it's not the uh, centerpiece, of course, of, of my campaign, because I do, I, you know, I talk about this climate stuff. And one thing I like to point out is that um, whatever your issue is, because every, you know, different people focused on different issues. Sure. Whatever your issue is, the climate crisis is going to make it worse. Oh, and definitely. So in particular, I think, you know, most people are concerned these days. There's been a real awakening, I feel like, to just uh, just in the last couple of years, to the uh, deep divisions in our society, the inequities, uh, which are really deeply ingrained. And the climate crisis is going to exacerbate all these divisions and uh, make them worse, unless we're extremely proactive. In fact even a lot of the solutions that are proposed to the climate crisis are gonna make these issues worse if we're not very intentional and thoughtful about how we go about it. So I like to say that um, you know, this issue, the climate issue is gonna affect all these other uh, issues. And if we don't deal with it, we, we won't even have any of these other issues. So that's why I always make that paramount. Now, when it comes to, nevertheless, I, you know, I have to, I have to kind of tell people, you know, my take on, on different things. When I'm out there 
at a campaign event, I can't just, you know, uh, say climate, you know, we need, we need to focus on the climate uh, and pretend like I didn't hear the question. Because uh, I hate it when I do that. And I, I feel like I, I, to be a credible candidate, you have to uh, address these very real issues that people are talking about, like violence. Uh, I had a friend here in New Orleans who was uh, killed in a home invasion oh. back in 2007. Um, she was kind of a prominent local artist. And so it was really uh, just one of those events that, that uh, got everybody's attention. And uh, the, you know, it was never, the crime was never solved. Oh, no. uh, so it is pretty tough to take, uh, obviously, uh, her, uh, her family and uh, the community a great deal. And of course, she was just one of, of, of so many people uh, in New Orleans who um, have, have been victimized and harmed. Uh, it's, this is really an issue that touches everybody in the city. So you know, anybody who's running for public office has to address it. And I am just very frank with people that I, I feel like uh, radical solutions are called for. Oh, because sure. Because we have had, um, we fiddled with the same system basically my entire life for long before I was born, in fact. It's been the same basic model of kind of crime and punishment, the same basic justice system, if you want to call it that. Um, and all we've done is fiddle with some of the parameters and we get variations on the same results. You know, the, the crime rate goes up a little, it goes down a little and, and uh, people, you know, when it goes when it goes down a little, they say like, oh, that's, this is good, this is progress. And, and when it goes up, they wring their hands and, and say, this is terrible. But in reality, it hasn't shifted very much, right? I mean, we're still living in um, a system and in particular in New Orleans, a system where we lock up uh, an astonishing percentage of our population. One of the highest incarceration rates in the world, it was the highest. I think Oklahoma might've surpassed Louisiana recently. But, uh, and, and yet we, it hasn't solved the problem because we know that it merely reproduces the problem. Oh, sure. There's all kinds of great critiques about that, um, but we need to get beyond critiques. We need to get to solutions. And so I propose several uh, solutions that I think we have to, if we want radical change, we have to implement radical solutions. So let's eliminate poverty. We can do that directly by uh, through a, a universal basic income. It's right. usually talked about at the federal level, but there's been some municipal experiments with that as well. Nice. This is what Martin Luther King was uh, working on when he was assassinated. And we can, uh, so eliminating poverty is, is one step. Eliminate, getting all the uh, profit motive out of the drug trade would be another by legalizing drugs. We've taken some steps in that direction nationwide, uh, in New Orleans in particular, we have just effectively decriminalized marijuana in Orleans Parish, which right. is a great step in the right direction. But we need to go much further than that. We need to just legalize it all and uh, take all the resources that we uh, foolishly allocate towards interdiction and punishment and put those into treatment and dealing with uh, drug abuse as a public health and mental health crisis, which is you know, what it is. And finally, and most radically, I would say we need to invest 
fully in education. Now there's other things sound radical and education just sounds well wholesome. Everybody can agree on that. But in fact, I say it's, it's more radical because the other two would have an immediate effect. We'd see immediate return on, our, uh, on those decisions. But investing in education is long-term. We have a historically under, sir, uh, underperforming um, educational system here in New Orleans, one of the worst in the country. And we have struggled with that uh, for so long. We need to invest a whole hog in education and the payoff will be in the long run, but it will be a great payoff. Oh, definitely. No, definitely. Those are some great ideas. And you know, what made you decide to go with the Green Party, you know, as opposed to independently or trying to go in a democratic primary, for example? Yeah, well, for one thing, we have an open primary system here. Uh, the true uh, jungle primary, as they call it, open okay. blanket primary, goes by different names. But basically, it means it's everybody against everybody in the primary. And so regardless of party affiliation. So uh, on this upcoming election, it'll be me and three other, three and me, uh, all in one and everybody can vote, no matter what party you, you're in. Um, I've been for, uh, as far as I know, for forever. The Green Party only officially got ballots uh, here in Louisiana in 2005, and we've had it ever since. So you can register as a Green. Uh, nice. Before that, I believe I probably was independent. The thing is that uh, the values of the Green Party, which are kind of clearly articulated, uh, in particular the, the the four pillars that they usually talk about, e ecological wisdom and social justice and grassroots uh, democracy and nonviolence or peace. Those really speak to me. Those are my values. Uh, I knew that this is the party that I wanted to be a part of ever since I had the opportunity to get involved nice. uh, starting in 2000. So I've really been a Green Party organizer for two decades. And there's, so there's never any question in my mind when I ran for public office that I have to do so with the party that you know reflects my most deeply held values. Now, a lot of people locally, uh, a lot of uh, you know very progressively minded uh, candidates, uh, they will run as Democrats here because they feel like they'll get shut out completely if they don't. Oh, sure. The Democratic Party does have kind of a, a stronghold. Uh, uh, some might say a stranglehold on the uh, local city government. You know, uh, all the elected officials around here are Democrats. In a red state, you know, a state where all the executive uh, offices are all held by Republicans, except for Weirdly enough, our governor, who, who is a Democrat, but that's kind of a, a historical fluke. Um, and so I, I always knew that I was going to run as, as a Green, uh, but I also uh, understand, and I've seen over the years, why a lot of folks don't, why a lot of folks run as Democrats. Because they figure eh, there's only two parties that have a chance of winning, so I might as well pick one of them. And that's why I know ever since, uh, like in 2016, when Bernie Sanders threw his hat in the ring, you know, he's always been an independent, but even he figured, well, the only shot I'll have at being president would be to run in one of the major parties. And then, you know, that became a thing for people running at other levels of office. You know, they'd run, 
run under the same column as him yeah. and they'd run in that primary as well and, and you there are certain that major forums here in the city yeah. that are that they are run by the democratic party and so if you're not a democrat you're not going to be in the forum and so a lot of people see that as a as a, a deal breaker or whatever you know that, that they have to run with the party oh wow yeah, because you did mention, you know, you have open primaries where you live. I know a while back I did an episode about open primaries. and I saw that. Yes. So, uh, so I don't know. Do you like the idea of open primaries? I do. I do. I think that there's arguments to be, you know, I, I think ranked rank choice voting is much more significant oh, um, sure. in, in certain areas, I guess you would say. Statewide, uh, the Republican Party has in the state of Louisiana, the Republican Party has just, you know, become more and more powerful. And they are now looking at, there's a real debate in the Republican Party about closing the primary system again, going back to closed primaries, mm. because they feel that open primaries uh, don't allow the party more control over who eventually would be the Republican nominee. Mm. And you tend to get somebody who's, uh, I guess, a little bit more centrist. And they feel like uh, they want somebody who's a little bit more uh, right wing, I guess you would say, you know, uh, a more, uh, more reflective of where the, the center of the Republican Party is rather than the center of the society as a whole. So uh, there's this debate right now amongst the Republicans about should we close the primaries again? Like they used to be decades ago, or uh, leave them leave them open, and oh. uh, the rest of us are just hoping they stay open. Oh wow! Well, no, that's good to hear because it because when I did that episode and I went around promoting that episode, yeah, I was running into some interesting reactions to it. Like for example, and I think it depends on how things go in a particular state. Because when it comes to New York State, the the Green Party there, and a lot of people there who are Greens are vehemently against the idea of open primaries one of them said they would be a death blow to third parties and that's because the way it is in their state is that you know they like one candidate could run in multiple parties oh, you know so okay. so you could still example vote for andrew cuomo without voting Democrat, because you could probably also vote for him in the Working Families Party. So mm -hmm. seeing that that situation is bad enough as it is, you know, they fear that it'll make it even worse there, where it's like, we might as well not even have a third party because, you know, like Democrats, for example, are just going to like send just enough people to infiltrate and make it go their way, as opposed to the way that most people who truly are a green or whatever third party want it to go. I was like, all right, so state by state, case by case, you know, some things would have to be reformed first before implementing an open primary in a certain state. I get that. I mean, my reason for w wanting open primaries is simply because of how the system is in this country with it. I mean, I would understand closed primaries more if we were in a more parliamentary system or if we had high voter turnout, three or four major parties and most people voted and voter turnout was 90%. In that case, I'd be like, all right, well, if you find one of these parties that aligns with you the most, you know, pick your party, stay in your lane, I'd get it in that case. But that's not the case here. I mean, voter turnout is really low in this country compared to other places. 
And yeah, the two major parties, which in many states, including mine, are the only ones that have like a publicly funded and administered primary election. When it's the primaries, you know, it's through convention if, you know, for libertarians or greens, but when it comes to a primary election, it's only Democrat or Republican. You know, so you know, we're already paying for that, you know, on the when it comes to being a taxpayer and all that. But also they're the ones getting the most media attention. So you so we know how the whole duopoly works. And I know, for example, in 2020, I mean, yeah, there's a green on my ballot for president, and then there's a green on my ballot for US Senate. And that was known all along. All right, great. But when it comes to all these other offices like US House and then like county level offices, I mean, there just you know, weren't any greens or any other third party really for those. But in the Democratic primary, all the way down through on the county level, even there were pe- progressives running, you know, under that, that Bernie Sanders ticket. You know, you had, we had someone running, you know, Bernie Kratz, I call them, you know, there's one running for US Senate and for US House in my district and two of them running for county level. So it's like, you know, I would like to have a, especially if I know it's only going to be a Democrat or Republican in the general election for those offices, then I'd at least like have say on who makes it on there. And at least, you know, without having to do a right and be able to vote for someone I truly want to vote for. So that's why I would believe in open primaries. Whereas, you know, as much as I, you know, I definitely voted green for president and U S Senate. And as much as I'd vote that way and identify as such, when it comes to the other offices where that party's not going to be in the general election, I'd like to have say on who will be, you know, so that's, you know, that's my belief on why I would prefer primaries to be open. And that way people who don't want to identify as a certain party don't have to, like, if you've owned that primary, you got to register as that party. And then, you know, it's on public record that, you're in a party that you, you may disagree with like 85% of the time, but you registered as such because there was a candidate you really liked running in their primary. And some people may take issue with that. And then that leaves people out as well. Yeah, yeah. It's, it does get complex, but uh, you know, there's a, there is a, a kind of matter of principle that you alluded to. And that is why should we all general John Q. Public, the taxpayers, why should we pay for private party primaries? Yeah, if we're if we're not allowed in them. Yep. Exactly. Seems, seems like a, a kind of simple matter of principle right there. So exactly. Exactly. And when it comes to anyone who's running for office at the local level or citywide level or who's thinking about it, like whether it's as a green or an independent or any party that's not Republican or Democrat, what kind of uh, advice would you have? Well, uh, I would say that um, you have to really think, you know, gosh, what advice do I have? You know, any if I were to give any advice, it would make it sound like I've figure this out or something. And uh, <laughs> okay. I'm, I've never run for public office before. Oh, wow. Uh, so, you know, this is, uh, I've never held office before. And uh, th- this is uh, a learning experience for me. So I'm learning as I go. So I would say, here's what I've learned 
so far. Um, one is that it's very important to be clear about you know, why you're running. What is, your, what is the point of the campaign? Uh, because I, I felt like it was uh, wildly unrealistic if I was to say like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to run this office. I'm going to run this race and I'm going to be elected to office. It's just the odds against me are so steep that that would have been like a, a delusional statement to make. But, it, but then I also found that people don't understand how are elect, I mean, even very well-educated uh, people that I know, friends and, and uh, so forth, that seem really savvy in some regards, don't seem to really understand how our political process works. And so uh, they didn't want to hear me speak realistically about my chances. Uh, I mean, I, just to give you a, a, a indication, the other two of the other candidates in this race had a quarter million dollar campaign fund each uh, before the campaign even began, and you know I had nothing. So, as we know in this country, there is a pretty strong correlation between what you spend on your campaign and and you know how you how you perform. You you have to have money. Uh, now, there's, it's great, it's very inspiring to see grassroots candidates kind of claw their way up and do sure. great things. But these are really, really steep odds oh, uh, yeah. for someone like me, right? So, you know, a good showing for a candidate like me would be to uh, actually get into some percentage points and not just be a fraction of a percentage. I mean, you know, that's just realistic. I've seen many of these... Uh, campaigns go down and I, and I see how third party candidates do. I've seen how grassroots candidates do, uh, even if they're registered Democrats, registered whatever. Uh, it doesn't matter. If you're a, a regular person, uh, you know, and not a member of the political class, if you're not an established candidate, you know, who's held public office before and has the name recognition or celebrity or something like that, you've you face almost insurmountable odds. And, and yet, uh, I found people didn't recognize that. The, the people basically had a very naive view of, of uh, the political process, that it's like some kind of meritocracy or like you just line up all the candidates, let them talk about their great ideas for our, our democracy. And then the, the people with the best ideas will advance you know, and, 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 and take, take a seat at the table and be a part of government. And that's just not how it works. No. You know, you got to be much more cynical about things. And, and by cynical, I just mean realistic. Oh, definitely. That's, 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 that's when uh, the system is rigged, it's not rigged like Donald Trump means when he talks about the system being rigged. Because yeah. <laughs> he's, he's a, a billionaire or whatever, you know. Uh, but the system is kind of stacked against uh, the idea of, you know, the citizen candidate. Uh, so that's the one thing that I've learned uh, so, so far is that I have to be very clear with myself about why I'm running and what realistic expectations I can have here, while at the same time being very careful about how I frame that, because nobody wants to, to hear 
like a message like, you know, I'm going to lose. That's not a winning message in America. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, I don't lead with that. I don't say that. Uh, I feel like I can say it more candidly with you because most of the people listening to this are not going to be local, right? They're going to be uh, outside uh, of the uh, local arena. And uh, they're probably fairly politically savvy. Um, so, you know, that's why at every campaign event, uh, I always end with the thought that whoever wins this election is going to have to deal with this new climate reality that we clearly are in now. And we have to, the citizenry, the people, who, the voters, have to hold those people accountable, no matter who it is that wins the election. We have to hold them accountable for climate action and climate justice. So that's my message to the voters uh, at these uh, campaign events. Definitely. And you're running for city council. So yeah, that's, I mean, that's where there's more of a chance for someone in your type mm -hmm. of party to, to actually win. I know the most recent candidate I interviewed was an incumbent. He was green, but he won as one. He won re-election as one a few times, and he's running for re-election again. So, you know, we always hear, like, when it comes to the presidential elections and everything, how there's no chance, no chance. And, and of course, people get caught up in the whole lesser evil game. But but as uh, we go down the down each level of office, you know, that's when there is a little more of a chance. Even in 2020 in my state, when I mentioned there's only a president and Senate candidate, uh, yeah, the Green U.S. Senate candidate got like more than double the amount of votes that the presidential one got. So as we go down the levels, you know, people feel a little more looser and comfortable with, you know, what do I really want? What do I really care about? So, you know, the chance is there. And you even yeah. mentioned uh, percentages. Is there any type of threshold that they have in Louisiana or New Orleans, or as if you hit it, even if you don't win, but if you hit that percentage, it's like it's better for next time around, you know, whether it's no, uh, not having to no. get signatures, things like that, or matching funds no, and whatnot. There, there is not. We, it, the, the laws for ballot access here are pretty uh, easy. Okay. Uh, so the we just have to run a candidate for statewide office or federal uh, every four years or so, I think. And uh, it doesn't really matter. You know, we have to have at least, I think, a thousand registrants uh, across the state. And uh, when they changed the law, loosened it up for ballot access, uh, they made it, made it pretty easy to, to get that access. So now we have five recognized parties, I believe, in the uh, state of Louisiana. Nice. Well, that's good. And is there anything you'd like to, anything you'd like to plug at all? Any way people could help your campaign or learn more about it? Well, uh, of course, I would like to direct people to my website, bardeverson.com. That is uh, my personal site, uh, which I turned into a campaign site. So you can learn a lot about me personally, but uh, there's also a lot about the campaign and the specific policy proposals. And that's really the reason, you know, that I got in the race in the first place was to try to inject this into the civic discourse, right, into the public dialogue. Is it worth running? Uh, even if victory is a long shot, uh, I think it is in order just to get people talking and thinking about these ideas. 
because um, I'm pretty sure that the, the policy proposals and so forth, you can see there on the website, I have uh, hopes uh, that we'll have the opportunity uh, after the election to engage with uh, whoever might, have, might be the winner uh, in promoting those policies and that in other races, uh, they'll also be talked about and so forth. So that, that's why I'm putting them out there. So people can go to bardeverson.com. They can sign up for the um, campaign newsletter. They can make a donation. They can just read uh, and see you know, what the uh, policies I'm talking about are. And we need more climate candidates. So I'm hopeful that somebody here in this will say like, yeah, you know what? Uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna take a chance next time I have the opportunity and step up, get out of my comfort zone that's what this has been for me. You know, I was very comfortable just, I have a full-time job. <laughs> I don't yeah. need to run for office, right? Uh, it would be much easier for me not to run for office. And believe me, in some ways, oh, I'm just, I'm just, we're, you know, I don't, I, we didn't even mention, but the uh, election has been postponed because wow. of Hurricane Ida. So I've got a whole five extra weeks uh, on this campaign. Right. And I can't take it anymore. You know, it's 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 a uh, it's a lot. Uh, so, uh, but uh, but I also find it incredibly uh, humbling and moving to have the opportunity to get out of my comfort zone and get out there and talk to people about probably the most important issue that they're you know that's facing humanity right now. So maybe somebody listening to this will, uh, you know, say like, you know, I'm going to take that step sometime uh, in the near future, get out of my comfort zone, run for public office as a client candidate, because we need to see more and more of those across the country. That is right, we do. Well, Barda, thank you again for being on the program, and definitely good luck with this election. Thank you so much for having me. Definitely. Again, BartEverson.com is where you can go to read more about his campaign and to donate or help out. If you enjoyed this awesome conversation, you can hear more like it. Get Yours Today is available on multiple podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Supporting and following is greatly appreciated. You can also like and follow Get Yours Today on Facebook. Either way, stay tuned as the good fight continues. As for now, peace out.